right, all right. Good morning. It is so good to see those whom I cannot see on Facebook Live, but also for those of you who are here. Uh, thank you so much for being the church, uh, for being with us. Um, we have been kind of talking about some uh, pretty, pretty significant things in here uh, over the past uh, seven weeks, and we've been using language that has become quite familiar to us now that may not have been familiar before. It's language like uh, emotional health or um, going beneath the iceberg. These are some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, even using words like counseling, uh, which was not part of our vocabulary before, is beginning to be introduced into it. So at uh, kind of a, a micro level, these are the things that we've been talking about. On a macro level, I think at the same time, uh, our vocabulary has been expanding over the past at least maybe one, two, three weeks. Uh, we have been introduced to terms like flattening the curve, right? Have you heard that? Uh, I've never heard of that before until these last couple weeks. Things like um, social distancing, right? Social distancing, and uh, some people have said, well, that sounds a little bit too, uh, like, antisocial. And so instead of social distancing, they use the language of, well, well, let's talk about relational radius or whatever it might be. But these are things that have been brought into our vocabulary at a macro level because there are two huge things going on at the same time. I think they're pretty huge. Obviously, the global pandemic with the coronavirus is something that's affecting not only our congregation, but is affecting people around the world. And then at a harvest level, as we talk about, as we talk about an emotionally healthy spirituality, it's been causing some kind of seismic shifts in the way that we do life, in the way that we do our spirituality. And so as we come here today, I think it's like March something or other, 15th, 2020, um, I'm a little bit conflicted as to where, where, where we ought to go with this. Do I continue in? Because we've got two weeks left that I wanted to talk about emotionally healthy spirituality, but I feel like it will be pastorally insensitive and slightly tone deaf to not address and talk about what's going on in our world. And so uh, without wanting to rob Peter to pay Paul, uh, I, I want to talk about both of these things at the same time. And so the first 45 minutes, I'm going to talk about emotionally healthy spirituality. Next 45 minutes, I'm, gonna t- I'm just kidding. <laughs> But since we only have, this is our last time doing it, we got 90 minutes, right? And then uh, no one's going to check you to see if you've been worshiping on Facebook. But um, in all seriousness, I'm going to try and weave these things together because I think it's important. I think emotionally healthy spirituality has everything to do with what's going on in our world today. And so I want to kind of uh, weave these, these ideas together. Um, back in the 90s, there was a movie that came out. I don't know if any of you saw it. Has anyone seen the movie called The Apostle starring Robert Duvall? JT, you did? No, she's nodding her head, but she said, no, I haven't. Okay, yeah, that movie, no, I haven't seen it. Okay, good. Well, uh, in the movie, it's, it's about this guy named Pastor Sonny Dewey. Okay, that's his name, Pastor Sonny Dewey. He lives, it's in the 80s, rural Texas, and he's a pastor, and this guy's like on fire for God. Like you think of whomever you think of who's like on fire for the Lord, this is him. So the movie starts, and he's in his car driving with his mom, and they see on the side of the highway this like major accident, terrible, terrible accident. And so he stops, and he's getting out of his car, and the cops are like, don't go there, don't go there. But he doesn't listen to them, and he goes there, and uh, there's a dude and his, and I think his wife, girlfriend, something like that, but she's dead, and he's about to die. And so he comes and he drops the gospel bomb on him and says, you need to put your trust in Jesus. You're going to die. You need to know that you're going to heaven. Leads this guy to Christ right before he dies. 
goes back into his car and he drives on. And he tells his mom, this is what I did. Uh, and, and this is the kind of life that he lives. Everywhere he goes, he's just uh, spewing the gospel to people and just telling everyone about the gospel, changing lives, leading revival meetings. People are just coming to know the Lord. Um, that's his life. And I was like, dude, pastor, son, are you the man? Everyone except for his wife at home. His wife at home is like, I'm sick and tired of this. I don't like this. I want a divorce. Respected by everybody else in the world, but hated at home. Why? Because I feel lonely. Because I know that you cheated on me. And we come to realize that he's not the only one because she's been having an affair with another pastor at the church. And so all of this stuff is happening. And so Sonny finds out about the affair. And one night he gets drunk and he gets angry. He takes a baseball bat and he kills the other pastor. Wow kills him. And then he skips town, leaves Texas. And as he's going, he prays, dear God, where do you want me to go? So you've got this like couple things going on where he just, everything is about God. Lead me, God. Show me, God. Show me. And then at the same time, he's like killing people left and right, whether it be literally killing them or killing them softly with his words. Just kidding. But he's killing them. Whatever it is, he's doing all this stuff. God, where should I go? And the Lord leads him to like Oklahoma or somewhere like that where he says, okay, I'm going to bury my old life. I'm no longer Pastor Sonny Dewey. I'm going to come out as a new man called Apostle EF. Okay, that's his name, Apostle EF. And he comes out and in order to show, man, I'm leaving that old life behind, he goes into a river and he baptizes himself and he comes out. He's like, I'm a new creation. So he comes out and he starts doing ministry. Like, he, he drives his van around, starts picking up all these people, builds a church, and the church starts blowing up. People coming to know Jesus all around. He starts a radio ministry, and all these folks are being changed by it. Oh, Apostle EF, you the man, you the man. But you know how if you don't resolve the emotional wounds and deal with the baggage, as much as you try to run from it, as much as you try to wash it with water, um, those festering wounds will continue to play out in your life. And so they do for him. Get to the relationship with a lady from the radio station. This other dude starts talking smack to him, saying, you're not all that you say you are. And so he gets into a fight with this guy. All of these crazy things happen. And while this uh, kind of duplicity is happening, the cops from Texas come, and, and they arrest him for the murder of that other pastor. Gets thrown into jail, and he's in jail, and he's telling everybody in jail about Jesus. It is wild. So... Pastor Sonny uh, is, is trying to get a job at our church, wants to be hired, uh, and you happen to know him from your old days in Texas or in Oklahoma. And they say, hey, do you know Pastor Sonny? Do you know Apostle EF? And you're like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, both me and, you know, me and my friend, we all know, uh, we all know him. See, so tell, tell us about him. Dude, this guy just loves God. He loves Jesus with all of his heart. And everywhere we go, he's like telling people about Jesus, like gets a flat tire, someone's changing his tire, he's telling them about Jesus. We go to eat at a restaurant, he tells them about Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's just dropping Jesus bombs on people and telling everyone about the Lord. The other person's like, are we talking about the same guy here? And he's like, yeah, so here's his Facebook page. And they show us, yeah, that's the same guy, but that's not the dude I know. The dude I know, he hates his wife. Like, she's neglected. He cheated on her. He gets in the fights. He's got a temper. He's got all these things going on. And so the church that's trying to hire him is conflicted. Who is the real Sonny Apostle EF? And will the real Sonny Slim Shady please stand up? Because we don't know who he is. Here's the reality. This isn't just a Hollywood reality. Okay, this is the reality of life even here at Harvest, isn't it? And people that we look at and say, wow, you know what? Such a respected leader. 
such a faithful servant, so committed to the work of God. He or she is so generous with what they do, while on the other hand, someone else says, are you, are we talking about the same person? The person I know, man, like, not the same dude, the way that they, they got potty mouth, right? They talk about people all the time, always get angry, like, always talk about themselves prideful, wanting to be noticed all the time. Who's right here? Well, the reality is probably both. We are deeply complex individuals with a bunch of interwoven virtues and vices within us. And as we've talking, been talking about emotionally healthy spirituality, what we've been trying to do is get to a point where our outer and inner lives are integrated together. Things like, uh, by doing things like exploring our past and, 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 and repenting of, of sins that have been passed on through generations, of, of, of feeling and allowing ourselves to feel and know why we feel the things that we do so that we can get beneath the surface because as icebergs tell us, uh, only 10% of an iceberg is above the surface is what we see. There's a great deal, 90%, that we don't see, and people are just like that. Extremely complex with a bunch of uh, moving parts within us, and in order to be a person of integrity, of integration, it means that the inner life and the outer life come into cohesion, into cooperation, and the idea is not that uh, the inner life of immaturity would catch up and the outer life of maturity would begin to look immature. No, no, no. It's that who we are on the outside as the mature human being would catch up, would allow our insides to catch up so that we'd be people who love Jesus with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength. What we do today then is I want to talk about just a, just a very simple spiritual discipline that will help us to be able to sustain the changes that God wants to do in our lives, uh, to hold them for longer in order that we can then experience change that God wants to do in us. Let's look at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 10 through 12, and then we're going to read verses 19 through 21. Uh, one practice broken up into two points of application, and it's basically, it, it's a really simple idea that I want to communicate to you today. First uh, John chapter 4, we're going to go verses 10 through 12, and then we're going to go to verse 19 and read until the end of the chapter, uh, three verses. This is God's word. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, if we love one another, we see God in each other, and his love is made complete in us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says... I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't possibly, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. How do you know, like how do you gauge your emotional maturity, your emotional health, it's always seen, and we've been seeing this for seven weeks, it's seen through our relationships with people. And what the Apostle John does here is what the rest of the biblical authors do, is he brings together the idea of loving God and loving people. See, as much as we want to separate those things out, 
As much as we want to separate loving God and loving people, none of the authors of Scripture will allow us to do that. All the writers of the Bible continue to join together what we want to say. We want to be able to say, yeah, I love God. I, yeah, sure, I don't like that person, but I love, mo- I love 99% of the people in our church. It's just 1% that I don't love. He says, whoever loves God but hates his brother doesn't say you're struggling, doesn't say that you're, you've backslidden, doesn't say you're love-deprived or, or, or lacking in love. He says you're a liar. That's a pretty, you can't be more clear than that, right? Like you can have your crew of people that you love. You can love your house church, but if you're hating on that one girl because she annoys you, or you've got your crew of people, and, oh, I love my church, I love my youth ministry, I, love, I just love people, but you've got these two people in your life that you don't like. He doesn't say you're struggling. He doesn't say you've got compromise. He says you're lying. He says you can't do that. You cannot love God whom you have not seen if you do not love your neighbor whom you have seen. What John is doing is the same thing Jesus does. Let's bring the great commandment together. Love God, love people. You cannot do one without the other. And so as we set once again this foundation, what does that mean? Well, if, again, emotional maturity is seen in our relationships, then it has to begin with having a right relationship with God. First, practice then to help us to sink in the change that God wants to do in our lives so that we can be emotionally healthy is is this. When you practice the presence of God, you can see God in your busyness. When you practice the presence of God, that means you know and you're aware and you, you, you fight to know and experience God's presence all the time, then you can encounter God in your busyness. What he's saying here is, hey, loving God, this is the most important thing. Last week, we talked about how the Sabbath command as the fourth one uh, links together loving God as the first three and loving each other as the final six. In the middle is the Sabbath command. Without the Sabbath, you cannot love God and you cannot love people. You can't do it. So we have to honor the Sabbath. What you come to realize, though, is that the Sabbath alone is insufficient to cultivate a love for God that flows into a love for your neighbor. How many of you, don't raise your hand because it might be depressing, but how many of you rhetorically think about this? The only time you open the Word of God, pray, worship, is on Sunday. Because if that's your reality, then you will find yourself lacking in love for God and lacking in love for people. It's the same thing. If you, cons- if you think about this as a, as a biological person, as a human being, if the only day of the week you're feeding yourself is Sunday, then what's going to happen by the time you get to Friday, Saturday, you're going to be extremely weak. Because one week without God makes one week. Is that One week without God makes you weak, and each day you don't go with God, you've heard this before, will make you continually weaker as the days goes on. So here's what happens. If you go Sunday, you spend time with God, that's cool. Monday, you decide, I don't need God. I I just came from Sunday where I spent time with God. That was my Sabbath. Monday comes around. You don't spend time with God. You're not living in the presence of God, not aware of His presence. Monday becomes, at the end of Monday, it becomes mourn day. Oh, my gosh. Life is so bad. Life stinks. Tuesday comes around, you say, ah, I'm still kind of living off a Sunday's meal. Tuesday becomes 
Tears day, and you don't know why you're so sad, you're so depressed. Wednesday becomes waste day at the end. Oh, I feel like I wasted another day. Thursday becomes thirst day where you're so, I'm so thirsty, and I, so I, I don't get my love for God, so I need to find it in other places. Friday becomes fear day. Oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, he loves me, he loves me not. God doesn't love me. Saturday without God becomes a sadder day than all the other ones. And then you skip church on Sunday, and Sunday becomes sin day. Because one week without God makes one week. Listen, I don't know how else to say this. There are a million ways to say it, but for a lot of us, that's our reality. And we wonder why we're so frustrated. We don't practice the Sabbath. We don't, here's, what, here's what the practice of the presence of God is doing then. It's creating in every day, okay, in every day, it's creating mini Sabbath for you within a given day. Some of you, it's, it's as basic as you need to start with a set time to spend with God. We love because he loves us first. Because he loves me, I come into his presence. I want to spend time with God. But for many of you who do this, you spend time with God in a devotional life, in a quiet time life, whatever you call it, time alone with God, whatever you call it, isn't it true that for many of us, our experience, I spend time with God at 7.30 in the morning, I read the word of God, but by the time 8.30 rolls around and the kids are asking me what they need to do to go to school and get ready, by the time I get the first period, by the time I get to lunch, you have long forgotten what you experienced as you spent time in the word of God that morning. We need a lot more than a Sabbath and a devotional time. We need intentional times to practice the presence of God. When I was in college, one of my Bible study leaders, um, Simon, he introduced me to, he just read this verse to me from Leviticus 6.13. It says, the flame must be kept burning throughout the day. It should never go out. In other words, he's saying the fire that is stoked in our hearts, we wake up and we spend time with God. That intimacy with God needs to constantly be kept burning throughout the day. What does that mean? It means at certain periods of time we stop. It doesn't matter how long it is. For some people it's going to be you've got time to spend 30 minutes three, four times a day. I don't know if, I don't know if you have that time. For other people it's 10 minutes. For other people it's just two minutes. Can I break this down into like a bite-sized piece for you? What if you stopped? A couple times a day, after you did your devotions, a couple times a day, you set an alarm for 12 o'clock, you set an alarm for 6 o'clock, and you just stop for like two minutes, okay, just two minutes. And you pulled away from whatever you're doing, and you just stopped and you centered yourself and said, God, help me to know, help me to stop what I'm doing, to be still, to slow down, and to go and enjoy your presence again. Maybe you'll reflect upon what you learned, what you read, what you encountered from God in your devotional time. Maybe you just stop, and you just envision, and you imagine in your heart Jesus. What would it look like? How would that change the way you go about the day? How would it change the way that you lived, and went to school, and went to work? What if you begin to practice this now in a time where you're not allowed to go to school and maybe some of you are forced to work from home and you've got all this time in the world? Maybe instead of catching up on parachute landing on you on Netflix or whatever it is that you watch or Itaewon class or whatever it is, what if instead of binge watching, oh my gosh, I haven't watched any of the 13,000 Harry Potter movies, let's do a Harry Potter marathon. What if instead of that, maybe the gift of this 
is not for you to binge watch these movies, but maybe could it be that God is calling you to recultivate an intimacy with him that was forgotten in the midst of our busyness and in the midst of our work, 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 study, 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 rhythm of life. Because you see, this isn't just something that we just invent out of nowhere. You see this throughout Scripture. Psalm 119, 164, David says this. He says, seven times a day I stop to be with you. Could you do that seven times a day? How might that change your relationship with God? Remember Daniel, Daniel 6.10, says three times a day. He opened the window, right, so that everybody could see. And he would stop and he would be with God three times a day. What if we began to do that and incorporate that into our lives? I remember I was teaching in the Dominican Republic one year, and as I was teaching, uh, someone's alarm started going off. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, silence your phone. Because after it started going off for, like, a little bit, kept on going. And I was like, dude, like, everyone can hear that. Why don't you silence it? And then I was like, who is that? And then uh, the pastor of the church looked at his phone. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, it's the pastor. And then he didn't turn it off. He just kept it going. And then he stood up. I was like, oh, my goodness, like, what's happening? And then he walked up, and he's like, three times a day, I stop whatever I'm doing so that I can pray to God. Other pastors in the Dominican Republic do this also. We stop to be reminded that we need God every moment of our days. So he said, you know, Pastor David, can you pray for us, pray for our, our country? I got, that has stuck with me for all of these years. What if we decided that that would become a priority in our lives? That in the midst of the busyness of the day, I'm just going to stop for two minutes. I'm too busy. I can't do that. Can I tell you, when I was a senior in high school, I was at a lock-in for our youth ministry, went from Friday night until Saturday morning, and I had to work across town at Chuck E. Cheese by 9 in the morning. And so I left our lock-in about 8.30, I changed into my Chuck E. Cheese clothes, and I went to work. And I remember being so tired, I, I, didn't, I barely slept, if I, I don't remember sleeping at all, but I remember feeling like a zombie, like I was going on fumes, and, and I got to work and we like bringing out pizza to people, and I was like, man, I feel like I'm going to collapse at any moment. And so I... I, I, I said, guys, I'm going to take a, a quick break, and I went into the bathroom, and I didn't have to go, but, you know, just like I'm dressed now, I didn't, have, I didn't take off my, my, my pants or anything. I just sat down on the toilet seat, made sure it was clean, there was no, nothing on it, sat down on the toilet seat, and I just closed my eyes for five minutes. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazingly restful right now. For five minutes, I did that. I got off the toilet, and then I went back to work. What if you did that? Not to close your eyes and sleep, but to just center your thoughts on God, to practice being aware of his presence with you at all times. Because isn't it true? Like for some of us, for a lot of us, isn't like doing one 30-minute devotion, like doesn't that feel like it, it just kind of evaporates after like such a short period of time? What if we began to, to put these hooks in our day to say, I'm going to meet with God here, I'm going to meet with God here, I'm going to meet with God here? Because he, here's what happens, guys. If you do that, I don't know how many hooks you need, three times a day, 
something begins to happen within our hearts where we begin to become more aware of God's presence. Not just those three times. We, we had this when our uh, oldest daughter, Manny, was a little girl. She was like two years old. She had this um, stuffed animal. I think it was either a bear or a dog, but you, but you press a button and, and, and it sings to you. And it says, I love you, I love you, morning, noon, and night. I love you, I love you. You make the world so bright. I was like, oh, that's so cute. And I thought about, hey, she, that, that dog loves us morning, noon, and night. Is she trying to say that at 8 o'clock I love you, at 12 o'clock I love you, at 8 p.m. I love you? Or is she trying to say something more? If 8, 12, and 8, does she not love us at 10? Does she not love us at 6? No, I think it's saying I love you at these points in time, but I love you in every moment in between those benchmark times as well. When we begin to set these times, and the, and the ancient church called it the, the daily offices. So if you're going through the Emotionally Healthy Day-by-Day book, it says here's your morning office and here's your nighttime office. They call them offices, a priority in our lives, that as we hook these into our day and spend time with God, the idea is that throughout the day, in between those moments, we become so much more aware of the presence of God. What if... In those moments between classes when you go back to class, just steal away for two minutes and just center your thoughts on God. God, let me be more aware of your presence today. Then you go to the next class, and as you're getting on the bus or as you're going in the car, as you're going home, as soon as you get home for, for those, within those first 30 minutes, you set some time aside. Like, how might that change our hearts for God, to become aware of God's presence in the midst of the busyness of life. Could it be that God is pushing pause on all of our lives in order that we could go back to the things that really matter, to declutter our lives in order that we can find joy again in the presence of God as we were created to do? What would that look like for you to do this? Because what ends up happening is the more we become aware of God's presence throughout the day, something begins to happen. The more you're aware of God in the midst of your busyness, this is huge, you'll become more aware of God in the midst of other people. Like you'll be able to see the goodness of God. You'll see the face of God in the eyes of other people. And this is the second thing that I want to talk about here, and we're going to get a little bit practical. The second thing is that when you practice the presence of people, when you practice the presence of people, you can see God in others. Okay, when you practice the presence of people, you can see God in others. Once again, you see, okay? Um, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In, in, in chapter 3, verse 18, okay, this is what John says, Dear children, let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Right? No one can love God whom he has not seen if you do not love God whom you have seen. Again, John is bringing together what we want to parcel apart. And you can't love God and say you love God if you don't love people. And so as you practice the presence of God, 
then you'll begin to be more present in order to see people. See, how does Jesus, when Jesus talks about this in the Great Commandment, um, the, the, the number one illustration he gives is a story about a good Samaritan. Remember the story, the guy's walking on a road, he gets jumped and left for dead, and then two religious leaders, a priest and a Levite, see him, and they go to the other side of the road, and they keep on going on their business. Can I ask you a question? Why did they go to the other side of the road? Let me ask you, let me answer that by asking another question. Uh, first riddle, first joke you ever learned as a kid. Why did the chicken cross the road? Well, the chicken crossed the road to get to the other side. Why then did the priest and Levite cross the road? To get to the other side. Because if they stayed on the same side, then they would be forced to look at that person. And if they saw him, they would see that they needed to help him it would be incumbent upon them as their responsibility. Why do we look away sometimes from a person who's changing their flat tire? Because if we see them, we'll feel guilty if we don't stop and do something about it. We'd rather not see them or pretend like we didn't see them because the more we see them, the more we see the image of God in them, the more we will be compelled to do something about it. And the easy thing for us to do is to dehumanize and see them as an object instead of someone made in the image of God. Hey, that's not uh, that homeless person that we see. They're just one, they're just part, they're part of the homeless problem in America. There's just, there's just a ton of them out there. And, and we don't want to see them because if we see them, if we read their story, if we read someone who says, uh, lost everything, family, wife, kids, all that stuff, starving, help me, then we'll be forced to see the humanity in them, to see the personhood in them, and we'll be forced to look and to do something about it. But as is we don't want to oftentimes, and so we cross to the other side of the road because we don't want to see. Because if we see them, then we can't say we love God if we don't do something about it. You see, in times like this, what is God calling us to do, right? Who is God calling us to be? Because here's what love does, okay? Not in words and tongue, but in actions and in truth. Love compels us to do something. Here's what Jean Venier says. He says, love is revealing the beauty of a person to themselves. Love is revealing the beauty of a person to themselves. In other words, if, if, if Monica, if, if, if Andy, if John does not see their own beauty within them. Here's what love is doing. It's helping them to see that they're beautiful through my actions and through the things that I do. This is what it means to love, to reveal an unseen, a hidden beauty in other people and to reveal it to themselves through what we do. That's what love is. It's not about how we make them feel. It's about what we show to them about their worth and about their dignity and who they are. And Jesus was the expert at doing this. Who's that lady? Who's that lady? Well, she just comes here every day. Uh, we, we don't really, we don't know her name. We'll just call her. Uh, she's just a, a Samaritan woman. Yeah, uh, no, no one wants to go and, and, and meet with her. No, she doesn't see the beauty in herself. All she sees is that she's been abused by men. She's been used by men. She's been used as their object of pleasure. She doesn't see her beauty, but Jesus stops because he was willing to spend time in the presence of God, 
he was willing and able to be present in the company of other people. Even in the midst of crowds, Jesus was able to see individuals. In the midst of crowds at the pool of Bethesda, he engages one man and he says, get up and walk. I know your story. In the midst of a crowd of people, a woman bleeding for 12 years touches him and Jesus doesn't just go and he stops. She just wants her healing. Jesus wants her to meet the healer. Do you see the difference, right? Some people might be, okay, you got what you want, go on. Jesus, she got what she wanted, let her go. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's far more important that she sees me and that I see her and that she knows that than for her simply to be healed of her bleeding. It's for us to see the human, not just for us to walk by these homeless people and throw out stuff, but to sit with them and to let them see the beauty in themselves that they don't see in themselves. That's the call to love. Not just line up, get your government handout, not do these things, and, and that's it. But to stop and to enjoy and to see and practice the presence of people that when we do this, we see in them the presence of God, the image of God. It's a call of God to love. Not with what we say, not to lift our hands and worship and then go out and to commodify people or to walk out of here and objectify people or much worse, to walk out and ignore people, but to see them and to reveal the beauty in them that they do not see themselves. And there are times where we're called to do this in ways that the world needs to see. And these days, these days, an opportunity has been given to us to do this. Because in the midst of the coronavirus, this pandemic, there are several options that we have that Andy Crouch says. How are we going to respond to this? Okay, here's, here's the first way, and it's, called, it's, it's an exploitative response. It's to say, hey, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this. Uh, I'm going to use this for my own gain, for my own purpose. I'm going I'm to capitalize off of this. I'm going to profit off of this. I'm going to preserve myself, but I'm going to look out for myself and myself only. Absolutely. And so here's what we do is we go to Costco, and there's eight rolls, eight things of toilet paper left. You're like, well, um, if there's only eight left, by the time I come back next time, there's going to be none left. So I'm going to take all eight of them and put them in my shopping cart in the event that I'm stuck at home for the next year. I'm going to have toilet paper even if nobody else will. Don't we do this sometimes? Have you done this? Anyone? Anyone? We do this, right? Because we're all, in, in times of national or widespread crisis, self-preservation is usually our default response. So I'm going to go and I'm going to buy. Someone told me yesterday, oh, I've got hand sanitizer. I bought like 18 packs of them. And I was like, I didn't say anything, but in my heart I was judging them. So what are you going to do with 18 packs of sanitizer? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to share that with people? Do you hear about these two brothers who bought 18,000 18, bottles of hand sanitizer? JT is nodding her head, so I'm not sure if she really means it or if she's just doing that. These two brothers drove around to two different states and bought 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. In those states, there was a run on hand sanitizer, so they put them up on eBay. At the start, $8. At the end, $70, a bottle of hand sanitizer until finally eBay and Amazon shut them down. At first, these guys, they were interviewed, and, and, and they're like, I don't see anything wrong with it. Price gouging is fine in America. It's, it's capitalism. It's, it's the free market economy. People will pay what they want to pay if they need something. 
and then they realize that they're being stupid and exploitative. And yeah, while it's not necessarily incorrect that this is the way our country works, is it the best thing to do in times of international crisis? Some people try to exploit and try to take advantage. Like in, in Haiti, when the earthquakes came, when the um, uh, earthquakes came in Haiti and, and flooding and all that stuff, there were people who were man. And this boils my blood. Driving around when kids didn't have food, didn't have homes, so people were driving around in their jeeps, saying, "Follow us. We're going to bring you to food." And they would kidnap these kids into slavery. That is evil and it's wicked, but this is the exploitation that happens in times like this. The second way that we could respond is ethically, right? Ethically. And this at the very baseline is how we as people of God should respond. Yeah, I, okay, there's 18,000 bottles. I could buy it all or I'll just buy what I need for myself and my family. Maybe I'll buy some for my neighbors who need it. I'll just pick up a few of them. That's ethically behaving. But there's another step that we can go to, and this is called redemptive action in times like this. And this is what I think the Bible calls us to, and this is what I want to call us to think through as the people of God. What does it mean to redeem this by sacrificing ourselves in order that others who need it the most could have the things that they need? What does it look like for us to redeem the brokenness of the world and to show a better picture of what a redeemed lifestyle looks like? So here's what it looks like. I, I know that some of us um, were really upset that the NCAA basketball tournament, March Madness, was canceled. I was upset because I was pretty sure that the University of Virginia was going to repeat as national champions but then I quickly got over because I realized that if there's no national champion this year, then for two years, Virginia can say, we are the defending national champions, right? And then we can win it a third, uh, third year. This is amazing. But some people got really upset, really upset that the NBA got canceled, that the Major League Baseball season got canceled or postponed, that the NFL and all of these things. And they're like, I have nothing to watch on TV now. As if that was the greatest tragedy flowing from a global pandemic in which lives are being taken. When the news broke that the, the NBA, for those who don't know, is the National Basketball Association. It's the highest level of basketball in the world. When the news broke, um, there was a man named Mark Cuban who's on Shark Tanks. He's an investor on Shark Tanks, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks basketball team and owner of, of other investment ventures. Um, he knew that if the season gets canceled, he's losing a lot of money. But his first thought, unscripted, unprompted, was if our game shut down, then there are hourly wage workers who work in our stadium at our games who depend on our games in order to live. So he got a group of people together and he said, hey, just tell me what number is necessary in order for me to be able to provide for these people as long as this goes on because they're the ones who need. He didn't think, I'm going to lose out on billions of dollars, which is true. His first thought was, how can I help the people who are really hit by this? Other NBA players, the first NBA player to get uh, coronavirus, a man named Rudy Gobert, donated half a million dollars. Right? And you can say what you will about him, but the fact that he gave half a million dollars 
to say, I want to help three different countries. I want to help there to be a cure. Other, other NBA players, Kevin Love, who's, who's dealt with depression and anxiety, said in the midst of global crisis like this, people will, will start, I mean, the, the, the incidences of mental illness will, 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 will rise. Anxiety will rise. And he donated $100,000 to help people in times like this. Super Zion Williamson, Giannis Antetokounmpo, different people just chipping in. Jeremy Lin tells stories after he donated hundreds of thousands of dollars. He tells a story of the doctor in China who was engaged to be married and whose wedding was right around the corner. But in his desire to help people, he postponed his own wedding so that he could care for and bring healing to more people who had the virus. He ended up catching the virus himself and ended up dying before he could marry. What does it mean to live redemptively in times? Could there be a reason bigger than a wet market in China? Could there be a providential reason for why we as a church are living in this moment in history when the worst pandemic ever to hit our world is happening right now? Could there be a reason beyond Mere self-preservation. Could God be trying to awaken a church in ways that we have not heard the alarm before? What might God be doing in your life and in my life? What might he be doing? What are the ways that we can live redemptively in moments like these? I was uh, in Virginia this weekend um, hanging out with my parents, and one of the things that uh, there's an app called Nextdoor, which is a neighborhood-based app. And in my parents' neighborhood, um, someone had posted, like a, a handful of people had posted and said, if there are people who are immunocompromised or people who can't go out, if there's elderly people who don't feel safe going out, um, please let us know because we will go and we're going to go grocery shopping. We'll buy supplies for you. Just give us a list. We'll go and we'll buy it. We'll bring it to your door. Uh, we're not going to charge anything. Just we'll give you the receipt. You can give us the money for it. But we're here to help because we're all in this together. That no one is an island. This is not a harvest thing. It's not a winter garden thing. It's not a Florida thing, not an America thing. This is all around the world. Korea, China, Iran, Italy, Europe, Spain, all of these places are being hit by this. What would it mean? What would it look like for the church to... We can't do everything. We're not going to change the world in this moment. But what could we do in our area to be the hands and feet of Christ, to turn the light on in the midst of the darkness within our area? Could there be something that God is calling us to do? in times like this. I think Scott Sauls said it best in the midst of all this last week. He said, yeah, we need, to, we need to be about self-preservation. He said, yes, wash your hands. And then he said, then get up and go wash someone's feet. In other words, there's a role for us here as a church to stand and to shine for his glory. I um, came across this prayer over the internet um, by a person named Anonymous, and I want to read this to you. It says, God, may we who are merely inconvenienced remember those whose lives are at stake. May we who have no risk factors remember those most vulnerable. May we who have the luxury of working from home remember those who must choose between preserving their health or making their rent payment. May we who have the flexibility to care for our children when their schools close, remember those who have no options. 
May we who have to cancel our trips remember those that have no safe place to go. May we who are losing our margin money in the tumult of the economic market remember the many who have no margin at all. May we who settle in for a quarantine at home remember those who have no home. As fear grips our country, let's choose love. During this time when we cannot physically wrap our arms around each other, let's yet find ways to be the loving embrace of God to our neighbors. Could we do that? Could that be the response of the church in times like this? Because it's easy for us to, like I said, to drown ourselves in Netflix, to drown ourselves in our... Isn't it true like we're so distracted from seeing other people these days than ever before? For, for, for Olivia's birthday, our family went out to eat at Ale House, and, and we try to have these like no phone zones during meal times. And uh, across from us was this elderly couple. They were, must have been 60, 65 years old. Both of them were seated, not facing each other, but were turned with their backs against the booth, uh, looking out at the same direction, both of them on their phones. As if they'd gone out to eat on a date with their phones and that the person across from them was their distraction. Sometimes it's so easy for us. I know how easy it is for me to do that with my family, with the people that I love, to be so engrossed in what I'm doing that they seem to be, people are never the distraction. They are the reason. They are the reason. God is never a distraction. He's the reason we live. So as we live in the midst of these times, it's a time of fear. It's a time of panic. Absolutely. But guys, this is a time where God may be purifying and weaning and strengthening the church like never before. These are exciting times for us not to be stupid, not to be foolish, not to do some crazy things and, oh, in the name of faith, we're going to go. No, that's dumb. That's not godly. That's not loving. But in wisdom, thinking about what would it look like for me to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Olivia and I have neighbors, Walt and Barb, who live down the street. They're 80 years old. She's recently, I mean, she used to always bring um, Manny uh, and Elijah little trinkets, little toys. Like, it's in my heart. She's got dementia now. It's in my heart to go and, and to, 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 to spend time with them, to see what they need. How can we serve them? How can we love them? How can we be the hands and feet of Christ? What does that look like in, in your life? Maybe it's someone in your house church or someone in our church um, who uh, they've got to work. And you can take their kids and watch them so that they don't have to take paid time off or unpaid leave in order that they can do the things that uh, they need to do in order to put food on the table. Maybe it's, um, I I heard that Disney interns uh, from the college program have to leave and be out of their homes by tomorrow. And they're asking for people to come and help them to to move luggage, to help them carry stuff. If that's you, you we can talk about it. If you've got got ideas, if you've got things that we can do, man, let's do it. Um, Our friend from, uh, who was was away in another country, um, Special K, is is in town and self-quarantined for 14 days, uh, 12 days from now. Maybe you can go and, and bring some food to her in order that she would know that, yeah, I'm not alone in this. What can you do to help be part of the healing process in our world in times like this because this might be i mean throughout the throughout the history of the church plagues and illness like this have been a part of our history when you read rodney stark who talks about the rise and fall of of the roman empire and talks about the rise of christianity and western civilization this i'm going to end with with this and just kind of bring it on and and see christ in it but he talks about how did how did this group of 11 people whose master had just been nailed to to a cross 
How did this group of 11 people stand up in the face of the Roman Empire, millions of people, and topple it within three decades? Like, how did, how did that happen? He says one of, one of the clearest examples of what they did was in the midst of, I mean, there weren't pandemic maybe at that time, but there were epidemics that would impact entire cities. And people didn't know a lot about germ warfare, but here's what they knew. When an outbreak happens in our city, we leave the city in order to stay alive. You stay, you die. That's it. So they would leave. And as Rodney Stark writes this, he says, the only ones who stayed in the city in Rome, in the places where the empire was, the only ones who stayed in the city when outbreaks happened were the Christians who risked their lives to care for those who are sick. That's our people. Like this is the lineage, this is the chain of witnesses, and it changed the world in ways that we're not doing it now. Change the world. In fact, when you see hospitals today, you see Orlando Health, you see ORMC, you see Florida Health, Adventist, or whatever you, you call it. Anytime you see a hospital, you think back and you think of Jesus when he said, heal the sick, preach the gospel, the good news to the poor, take care of these people, cast out demons. That, that ministry of Jesus is the reason why hospitals were started because the Christians were the ones who stayed and took care of the sick people. And then they said, Let's make it easier to treat as many people so that they don't die. Let's bring all the sick people together in one place. We'll call it in English a hospital where we can care for these people. And so the Christians would do that. They would not leave the fire. They would walk into the fire, and they would care, and they would love, and they would show the love of Christ so that when these people were healed, what do you think they did? What do you think they did? When these pagans, unbelieving people, were healed of the plague. What did they do? You think they went back to their pagan temples of worship where their leaders had all left town? Or would they go to the place called the church where these Christians who took care of us stayed because they saw themselves as the family of God in a given city and chose to stay? They flocked to the churches and they said, we want what you've got because you were willing to get what we had in order that we might find the life that you know. When we live lives of redemptive love and action, not only do we reflect the beauty of the church that's changed the world throughout time, but we reflect the beauty of the one whose name we bear, that we show ourselves to be little Christs in the world, Christians, that Jesus, who lived in the sterile environment of heaven, came into a virus-ridden world of sin and sickness and illness and death, and he subjected himself to it so that through his wounds we might be healed for once and for all, so that we will be with him soon and very soon where there's no more sickness, pain, and death. He entered into our brokenness, and he took that brokenness upon himself at the cross, and he hung on it so that we can say, here I am at your feet in my brokenness. I find myself complete. He's the one who was made unwhole in order that we might become whole in him. He was the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us in order that we in him might become holy, the righteousness of God in Christ. See, this is the heritage. This is, this is what our name means as Christian. This is our family. These are our ancestors who willingly entered in when everybody else left and said, we're here to show you what Jesus looks like.
Could it be that God has allowed us to be here as his church in this moment for such a time in order that we might rise and not run? This is our time as a church. We're made for this moment. Let's embrace it and let's live in it. Let's pray together. Can we pray? Um, maybe the first thing that you can pray, as much as you want to go and help people, we can't do that if we're not practicing God's presence. The first thing that you can pray is, God, would you help me to set these times in my day, even right now to set alarms on my phone so I can be with you? Maybe three times a day, maybe five times a day, maybe just two minutes a day, building it into your schedule as you work from home and as you do school from home. And then secondly, who are the people in your life who need help? Who are the people in your life for whom this is not a mere inconvenience, this is life and death? Who are the people that you can help and embody the love of Christ. This is our moment to shine. It's the people of God. Let's pray together for a minute or two, really praying these truths into our hearts. Let's ask the Lord that he would help us to live in this moment, knowing, being aware of God with us, being aware of God's presence, the imago Dei, the image of God in the face of every person that we see, to love them by revealing the beauty of that person to themselves. Let's pray together practically, specifically, sincerely, asking the Lord that he would help us to live fully in this moment for this time. Let's pray for a minute or two and then I'll pray for us and we'll continue. Father in heaven, we thank you that as the entire world goes through this and watches how this unfolds, as we've often said, that as a non-Christian goes through this, so too do the Christians in order that the world would see the difference. Lord, may we show that there's a difference not just because we do everything that everything else that everyone else tells us to do, not because we do what everyone else does in order to preserve themselves and to stay healthy, but that we'd be willing to go the extra mile, not to be stupid and to throw ourselves in the midst of a crowd of infected people and to say, I'm here to 
get what you've got to show that identity. Nothing stupid like that. But in the wisdom that comes from heaven, that's humble and pure and peace-loving, the wisdom that comes from God, that we would exercise faith, love, and action. That we would change things as a church, not because we're afraid, but because we're, we're wanting to love, to bless others, and to be the best citizens of our state and, and city that we can be. So Father, help us to think love, to think beauty, to think you, to think the image of God. May we practice your presence. May we practice the presence of people for your glory, for the joy, for the healing of many, and for the powerful witness of your church in times like these. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. And out of that love, we go and we love others. In Jesus' name we pray.